0: If you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be kind of hanging out today. And this is definitely a passage that if you have a Bible, you'll want to kind of stick your finger in it or your thumb on the app. Um, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life." This is really an amazing comment. It's very unique. It's very poignant. Paul very rarely mentions people by name in this form. He'll mention a lot of people by name when he's kind of greeting them at the end of the letter. But here we have a direct address to people, and not just any two people, but very important people in this co- community. Um, it's one of the key reasons uh, that Paul writes this letter. It's one of the things that shapes the, uh, the content of it, this uh, issue um, between uh, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, ph- Philippians, uh, is the, or the, the, you know, the church in Philippi, so when I mean the Philippians, I'm talking about the people there. They're Roman citizens, and the Philippian Christians you know, have that, on the one hand, enjoyment of the privilege of being Roman citizens and the benefits that they have, but uh, also the constra- contrast of hostility when their faith in Jesus as Lord brought them into conflict with the Roman ethos of pagan worship and allegiance to Caesar is Lord. The Romans did not take kindly to other allegiances, as you know. You can actually read about the church's origin in uh, Acts 16, it's quite poignant. You have a small Jewish God, uh, Jewish community and God-fearing Gentiles, if you remember, God-fearing Gentiles are Gentiles who worship with Jews but have not converted, they haven't been circumcised, or they haven't, uh, they haven't actually become Jewish, but they fear the Jewish God. These are called God-fearers. So, somehow, and in, I in don't know how, but in, in uh, Philippi, there was a small community of Jewish people and God-fearers. And, uh, and you'll meet one of them, Lydia. Paul met Lydia uh, by the riverside, where she was praying, and God opened the heart, it says, uh, of Lydia to the Gospel, who in turn opens her home to Paul and the other disciples, and they plant this little church there. Paul, like he typically does in these cities, causes trouble. Um, He casts a demon out of a slave girl. Uh, And this is uh, is alarming to the people in Philippi. They say these are customs that are not lawful. So Paul and Silas are flogged and jailed. Interestingly, only afterwards do they claim, hey, you know, we're Roman citizens. Um, They could have said that beforehand, but they didn't. they counted it a privilege to suffer with Christ. Uh, however, their claim of Roman citizenship is good for the other Philippian Christians because it issues an apology. And so there's kind of a, uh, a safeguarding of a little community there. So Paul has warm feelings uh, to this congregation as he does to all of the communities that he's planted. And uh, the, Mas- the, the church in Philippi is in Macedonia, which is very poor. And uh, out of their poverty, the Macedonian community were very generous financially. This is the hallmark of the Macedonian churches. And they provide a financial gift to Paul, who's in jail at the time, probably in Rome, when he's writing this letter. And uh, this elicits a letter back from Paul. Um, It's a stylized letter, actually. This is called a letter of friendship, and you can read about that sometime. It's a very interesting, uh, kind of uh, uh, type of letter that this is, but it follows a form and a typical friendship letter in ancient culture meant that there was a certain kind of reciprocity that we share together. Friendship means that we have a kind of reciprocal bond. So in letters of friendship, the author is going to express their interest in the affairs of the community. The author also expresses confidence that that interest will be reciprocated. We're caring for each other. And then there will be requests for assistance on the basis of that mutual friendship. And this letter kind of fits in that format. However, what I wanna call attention to are some of the distinctive features that within this friendly letter to the the Philippians, uh, Paul is going to address, first of all, um, the connection of his gratitude to the gospel because everything that Paul says or does is integrated into the gospel even friendship, even gift giving, uh, you know, even conflict. All of these things integrate back into the gospel. And so here we'll see how the gospel is on full display, not just as personal gratitude, but as something which unites them together as the bond of friendship. And, of course, there's a unity here uh, of purpose around exhortation, so, Paul is going to use this letter to exhort the community into this bond that they share in the gospel. Um, so, we're going to see here that Paul will focus on unity. And here, unity is one of purpose. It's not just agreeing on ideas or having similar opinions about it, any everything. And we'll get into that in a minute. Rather, it's more comprehensive and describes. Uh, What I alluded to in my email this week um, about a manner of life. Paul says in in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is a really great phrase. I like it a lot Um, in a certain sense it's because it challenges a little bit of kind of our our modern world, which is really focused on things like uh, our ideas, what we think and our skills, what we're able to accomplish, thinking the right thing is not a manner of life. That just means that you have right thinking. But that's not expressed in any particular way unless you determine it to be expressed in a particular way. Having really great skills is not a manner of life. That just means that you're talented. Paul's talking about something much different than just the way we think or the things that we can do with our talent. He's talking about a manner of life and this is deeply Jewish. In fact, uh, it's really interesting to think about how often in Paul's letters, Paul talks about how we walk. Um, There's just a host of, if you want to do a really interesting word search, Uh, you could uh, look at the the number of times Paul talks about walking a particular way. Uh, This is how Jewish discipleship was structured. The rabbis used to say a good disciple is dirty with the dust from the sandals of their master, meaning that they're following that close behind them as they're walking. We're to imitate God. Paul says, be imitators of Christ as you are imitators of me. So this isn't just about knowing this doctrine or, hey, guys, have better behavior. This is talking about actually a manner of life grounded in having the mind of Christ. Doctrine is important, yes, and Paul will describe that. And there is a clear ethical focus on the way we live. Paul will describe that. But it starts first and foremost with a relationship. And Paul never loses that relational dimension which is at the very center of his doctrine, of his behavior. Take the relationship out, you've got a whole different thing. We, say, we see this relational quality emphasized very strongly here at the beginning of our passage in chapter 2. Um, he starts out with this very warm, rich emotional affections if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, like how could you, and, uh, how can you get more emo- emotionally rich in this description of what Paul's describing from the relationship that he has with the living God these words are all grounded very deeply in the way that a Jewish person would consider God as a covenant-making God, a hesed loving God, a God who enters into relationship with his people, a God who sacrifices for his people. And so we have these, these kinds of, uh, 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 like I say, emotionally rich words, encouragement from Christ. That means from him and with him. Comfort from love, meaning the love that we experience from God, that's that covenant making, relationship developing love. This uh, um, uh, participation in the spirit, a very rich concept, the Greek word there, you may find familiar, it's called koinonia. Maybe you've heard that word before, it's used a lot. Um, Koinonia means the deepest bond of friendship that you can have to the point of participation um, uh, this affection is, is a hard word to translate from the Greek. It, it's the deepest kind of, well, in the King James, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny when I was a kid, but it's actually a, a good translation, bowels of mercy, right? Because you feel it in your gut. Um, we lost something when we, when we stopped saying bowels of mercy. It's not a very pleasant term, but it is very visceral, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, it's something you feel is the point. It's not just an intellectual type of thing. This kind of um, affection, there is a felt. It's something that you feel in your gut. This kind of thing Paul's talking about. And what Paul is saying is that if we experience these qualities in our relationship with God, it is what he's going to say is going to be natural for their completion in human relationships where the same qualities will be expressed. So do you see how Paul's bringing us right away? He's bringing this whole dimension of having one mind and one spirit right into the lived relationship that we have with the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who themselves enjoy this koinonia together. So if we could say it this way, being of one mind— Uh, which Paul is going to enjoin us to do here, is to feel the same way about the same thing. Now I know we get kind of funny about the word feelings. Well, we're just not governed by our feelings, and I, I, I hope you can see that Paul's not talking about feelings in kind of a flippant type of way. He's talking at the deepest level. He wants us to feel the same way about the same thing. So it's really important to know that the thing that we're feeling the same about is worth feeling the same about. All right? So if I wanted to be very provocative, I don't think it's important for us to feel the same thing about our future candidates. Okay? Some people feel that. I have friends, Christian friends, who feel that that's like priority number one, is to feel the same way about the same candidate. All right? Paul does not get sidetracked. Okay? That's what I mean. He's not telling us to agree on everything. There's something, though, about which we're to feel the same way. Feeling at the deepest level, feeling that comes from our conviction. Paul says, that is what we are supposed to be of one mind about. Um, So the gospel uh, that Paul is talking about is not just an echo chamber or having the same opinions about everything, rather it's that we're to rally around the gospel which is first and foremost a person Jesus the Messiah, it's around him that we rally. It's around him that we praise and bear witness. The teaching of the gospel for Paul is multifaceted. Paul mentions the word gospel more in Philippians than in anywhere else, but he gives no definition of it. That's because it's just many things around the person of Jesus Christ. It's the content of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's the content of God in Christ given to us in the Holy Spirit. It's the long narrative unfolding from God's covenant promises way back from Abraham and even earlier through the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's about the promise of return. It's about the renewal of all things. That's the gospel. In other words, it's got both content, but it's got direction and movement. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven. And what does the kingdom of heaven do? It breaks in. So you can see there's, it's like jumping into a flowing river. And we're to be of one mind in that. That's what we're to be of one mind about. We're to feel the same thing about it. We're to have one experience of it. It's just not possible to experience the gospel on your own. That doesn't mean that it's not deeply personal. And each of us have our own personal testimony. But the testimony is all automatically of a relationship. And that relationship automatically unites us with others who have had that same experience. We're to be of one mind in that. We're to have one experience of that. We're to be together in heart and soul about the gospel. And this is, this is just... Uh, expressed all throughout scripture. One of my favorite verses I'm contemplating right now because it's a Jewish holiday season which I'll talk about in a minute. But Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head. It's like the dew of Haramon, the tallest mountain which falls on the other mountains of Zion. I love this week it makes me most homesick for Israel, where some of you know I've lived a little bit, because it's the Feast of Booths. And Israel feels a little bit like this in Jerusalem. It, the weather, the temperature drops, you start to see some clouds in the sky for the first time in a long time. It's festive, and the reason why it's called the, the Festival of Booths is because Jewish people build little booths on their balconies and in their yards, uh, as God instructed them to do all the way back in Leviticus. So this is a biblical feast. It's one of the three pilgrim feasts, meaning people from all over the Jewish world will go to Jerusalem and celebrate uh, the, the Feast of Booths in, in Jerusalem as God had instructed them to do. And the reason why you build a booth, and you can read all about this in, in, in the Bible, um, is because it, you're dwelling together in the unity of a shared experience. It's the shared experience of the Jewish people leaving slavery and Uh, In Egypt and wandering in the desert for 40 years and during that desert time they would build booths and God said I want you to build a booth in a particular way to remind yourself of how I cared for you in your desert wandering so There's a long history of of the metaphors around this festival that develop over time. And I won't go into all of them, but there's provision in the desert. There's the promise of the new land to come. It's in this festival you get this kind of coronation of the coming king that will settle you. And then even, even further than that, Because it's a harvest festival, you get the idea of the ingathering of the Gentiles and the completion of a covenant in the whole new world. And you will find in the book of Revelation all kinds of analogies to the Feast of Booths. It's my favorite, one of my absolute favorite Jewish holidays because it is so meaningful to me. It means that in the journey that I am, which sometimes feels like a desert wandering, God is with me. His people are with me. The King Messiah has already been uh, crowned and he will be coming again to establish his kingdom once and for all. There will be a new world with leaves of healing on the banks of the new river. And that's what it means to have a shared experience, to have your consciousness feeling its way forward into the gospel movement. Unity is not possible where God is not known. You can have the best ideas in the world. You can have the most talents and be the most most ethical person. But if you don't know God personally, if the gospel is not in you, then unity will never be possible. Where his presence is not experienced, where his promise is not embraced, there won't be the same feeling about the same thing. Where there is lack of shared experience with God and with each other, disagreements will be temptations that will be impossible to overcome because of our fallen nature. Disagreements prick our sinful nature and they provoke division automatically. It does not take us very long, in fact, it takes milliseconds for us to start viewing other people who disagree with us as enemies. It's as natural as falling off a log. It doesn't take long for us, it takes just milliseconds for us to automatically start justifying ourselves and proving ourselves and seeking to win, to gain the power. This is just what we do all the time unless the Holy Spirit has redeemed our hearts. It's just a natural disposition. That's why the the gospel has to be so very central to our experience, it must be the source of unity, the experience of the gospel. It's the gospel alone, meaning the presence of Jesus in us, that can subdue our sinful proclivities as well as our emotional and psychological baggage. There just is no other framework out of which we could possibly obey Paul's direction. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and look not to your own interests but to the interests of others. Absolutely unnatural. Why on earth would we ever do this? And believe me, this is not a foregone conclusion that everybody would say, oh yeah, of course that's the right thing to do. Not in Roman and Greek culture, they didn't have this point of view. And not just in their culture. This is nonsensical speech for a mind that has never experienced forgiveness, or reconciliation, or love, or community. But we have, Paul says, we have experienced these things, and we ought to be constantly renewing our experience all the time, every day, especially when we gather together. This is the thing we're supposed to feel the same about. I found a fantastic quote from Aquinas on this passage. I won't read the whole thing, but here's what he says about it, and I was so encouraged and delighted by it. He says, we're to acquire, okay, this is a direct quote now. He says, we're to acquire by experience the mind which you have in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, it should be noted. He's a good scholastic, a medieval theologian, by the way, Aquinas, um, wrote a lot. Um, It should be noted that we should have this mind in five ways according to the five senses. First, we're to see his glory, all we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. So there are a lot of verses around each one of these things, and I'll let you go and find even more verses, but we're to see him, okay? We're to hear his wisdom. You know, his sheep know his voice. They hear him and they follow him. Uh, We're to smell the grace of his weakness that we might run to him. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Draw me after you, is the psalmist. Forth to taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. To touch, to touch his power that we might be saved. If I only touch his garment, I shall be made well, said the the woman to Jesus. Man, I love that. I got to think about that for a long time and just kind of use that in my prayer life. The five senses experiencing the mind of Christ, just beautiful. Now we move into the, 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 uh, the part of Paul's teaching where he's going to describe that mind in verses five through 11, we're to have this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on now to describe how Jesus manifests this mind. He says, uh, it's the very, uh, Jesus is, what he's going to describe here, and this is very important, is Jesus uh, in the form of God now becoming in the form of man. And he wants to unpack that as a paradigm, an example, a model for what it's like to have a particular disposition. And, um, uh, and so he says uh, that Jesus, wh- whose mind we have and to, to emulate, in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not acu- account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? Okay. Now, the form of God, I think for, because we're kind of engaged right now in our, our kind of home group catecheticals, catechetical studies, you will hear echoes of the creeds here, and that's because the creeds are in, in great degree looking at Philippians 2 to describe what it is that we're confessing about the nature of Jesus, because you remember at one time there was a lot of disagreement about whether or not Jesus was God or not, what a scandalous thing to say how could a man be God? Well, that is a difficulty. But here you can see Paul sharing with us that this was the earliest confession about Jesus, is that he is divine. He's in the very form of God. The way that our Nicene Creed describes it, and we'll be reciting it in just a few minutes, is that he's eternally begotten. God from God, true God, from true God of one being with the Father. This is disclosing some of the characteristics of being in the very form of God. But Paul here isn't wanting to stay long on the point, which is interesting because he assumes that there's already unanimity around that. What's intriguing to Paul is the disposition. That's what he wants to capture in this passage. He's saying, yes, we agree already that Jesus is already in the very form of God, but what's the thing I want to draw our attention to is the disposition of Jesus, the mind of Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, became the form of a slave. Now, I want to look for a minute at this little phrase that comes between there, and that's that... um, he did not, uh, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a, an important point, and it's a little hard to unpack here, but that basically what, what he's saying here is that God is not a grasping God. In other words, Paul is saying this equality with God thing that Jesus has, Jesus has decided, I will not use that to my advantage. All right, that's kind of what's being conveyed here. I mean, imagine a secular Roman person being elevated to Caesar. The the goal there is to grasp. It's to contain power. It's to extend power. All right, what's going on here is that God is saying, I'm not the grasping sort. And that's actually really important because Grasping is actually satanic. That's the hallmark of the devil. Grasping is actually what we do when we are afraid and when we are selfish. The grasping hand is one of the supreme expressions of rebellion against God. Whereas the open hand is one of the supreme expressions of being his child. And so... There's a whole part of our human nature that just wants to grab and hold, and what Paul is saying is that's not the godly trait. God is not a grasping God. Instead, he's a giving God, even to the point of great sacrifice. Interestingly, one of the reasons why um, Jesus does this isn't simply because he has the quality of humility it's because he sees the bigger picture. And that's something that a grasping hand cannot do. It's actually, it's on a whole different part of your brain. There's a certain part of ourselves that grasps and there's a certain part of ourselves that sees things comprehensively. And what Jesus is doing is seeing things comprehensively. He knows there's a tremendous problem. And the problem is our helplessness, our sinfulness, are being separated from God the Father. And the remedy requires something extraordinary. It is that he must humble himself and take on the form of a slave on our behalf and be brought to death. And because of that, the way back to reconciliation is made. And Paul said, that's what I want you to be like. I want you to have a bigger picture. I want you to know that you don't have to grasp, but with an open hand you can feel the same thing. You can feel the same way about the same thing. Um, Eudoia and Syntyche are not together. They're not of one mind around the gospel. Perhaps they are in disagreement about some of the things common to congregations where Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together and couldn't figure out Quite how to do it, Um, or how to engage the Roman culture, perhaps. Remember, these two women are key leaders to Paul. This isn't some kind of silly, you know, spat uh, between two uh, immature people. This is this is a disagreement about the gospel uh, and how it should be worked out. And Paul is saying here, "I want you to be feeling the same way about the same thing." And I suspect that the presence of the helper is meant to focus attention on that mutual goal so as to clarify and illuminate the perspective of these women leaders, to reframe the disagreements. I just think this is probably the best example of mature Christian community that I can think of. Wise leadership, humble service, constructive exhortation, asking for help, this is what we were doing together as a congregation a few weeks ago. This is the model for us to be mature And God helps us to imitate it well. I'll just share one story briefly and then bring this to a close. But 14 years ago, um, I was in a ministry position, and I experienced great conflict with a friend, a dear friend, and a colleague in ministry Um, 14 years ago, 15 years ago now, I think. It was not uh, solvable at the time, this conflict that we had and it cost us a lot emotionally and vocationally. Our ways parted. I struggled uh, for years over this. It was deeply grievous to me. On the one hand, I had deep grievances for circumstances that happened. This was in Israel. But I was also aware of my own fallibility and my own sinfulness. It was incredibly complex, deeply confusing, and very hurtful. But this is where Paul's final description of Jesus' exaltation became clear to me. You'll see that after Jesus' death, um, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus died, yes, but as a reward for his obedience, he was highly exalted. And so I asked myself often about this situation. Our hearts will be united on that day. So why not now? I knew there was something that we should feel the same about. And I knew that an unreconciled state now would have a future impact then. There is a future for my friend and I. There's a destination where the kingdom of heaven becomes fully realized in our experience, a day of judgment, and a day of triumph of the gospel. That reality of that future moment helped me stay motivated in my grief to seek a way forward to move past the breach, but I did not know how. I struggled terribly with how to form words, struggle how to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, which is what Paul says in verse 12. I was struggling with that. I needed help. It took five years for me before I finally discerned the words that I wanted to say, and God helped me form them. And there were words that were true and authentic for me. I could not rush into it. I emailed these words to my friend, and by God's grace, they were received very well and returned with equally authentic words of reconciliation. I'm sharing that. Because today, I will be boarding a plane for a diocesan retreat in Texas that will take me 11 hours to get to. (laughs) And as it turns out, my friend will be there. It will be the first time that we've met in 15 years and we will be grateful to see each other. Not only because we love each other, but because the gospel is at stake and somehow in our reconciliation, the gospel will bear more fruit for his ministry and for mine. That will compel the gospel forward and attune us to that final day of triumph when together our knees will bend and our mouths will open to c- declare that Jesus is Lord. That is the mind of Christ at work in us. Clunky, painful, distressing, yet as patient and compassionate as Jesus himself, full of comfort full of affection, full of sympathy. The unifying power of God's love grounds us in a living and thriving relationship with him and with each other. We need each other. Eudoya and Syntyche Sintiki, Sintiki needed help. We need help. And we have it in God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and with others who love us, with whom we feel the same way about the same thing. Let's be a people of one mind, in Him, with each other, and through that bond, see the gospel take hold of even the most naughty situations that exist among us, and see people free to know God is their Lord and Savior, and ourselves to confess Him, the same. Amen.